אלה שמוס האנשים אשר שלח משה לטור את הארץ, ויקרא משה להושע בן נון יהושע. And these are the names of the men which Moses sent to spy out the land. And we knew all those names. They are the Nesia Adar, the Roshim of the tribes. But there is one difference. And Moshe called Hoshea the son of Nun, Yehoshua. Now, why was this name changed? We're given two interpretations uh, in the Gemara. The first one comes from uh, Gemara and Sanhedrin, 17. According to the Talmudic tradition, Moshe renames Yehoshua in preparation for the transfer of the mantle of leadership. He knew that it would be Yehoshua who would lead the people into the land. The prophecy of Eldad and Meldad recorded in last week's Pasha echoed through the camp. And what did they prophesy, the Gemara says? They said, Moshe shall die and Yehoshua shall bring us into the land. So right away in the very next Sedra, Moshe is renaming him in response to the prophecy of Eldad and Medad. He knew eventually that he would lead the nation. And as now they stood on the threshold of the land of Israel, he thought that the time had arrived. He changed Hosea's name as a symbol of his new status as leader of the nation. Just as God had changed Avraham and Sarah's name to reflect their new status as progenitors of great nations. But Moshe had no illusions about the task which he would leave to Yoshua because he had witnessed multiple rebellions on the part of the people. Their behavior had pushed him to the brink. He had every reason to suspect that the people of Israel would present Yoshua with the same challenges. And so he prays on Yoshua's behalf. And now I bring you a Medrash Rabbah from Bamidbar, 16.9. When Moshe saw that the others were wicked man, he said to Yoshua, Yehoshua, a notarikan, a contraction of Hosea and yud Vav, may God save you from this generation. Very dark naming of him as a kind of premonition. He prayed for him, may God, Yah, save you from the plot of the spies. And that is actually what Rashi actually says. Vayikra Moshe Hoshea, and Moses called Hoshea the son of Nun, Rashi, by giving him this name, Yoshua, which is a compound of Yah and Hoshea, may God save. He, in fact, prayed for him, may God save you from the evil counsel of the spies, a very dark premonition. So this explanation presents a problem of its own. If Moshe had a negative premonition, why did he proceed? Why not cancel the mission or change the personnel? And if Moshe felt the needed to pray, why not pray for all of them? Why just Yehoshua? And Hoshea bin Nun is called Yehoshua many times earlier in the Torah. So we have problems. Ladies and gentlemen, we have problems. And it is possible that Moses was simply worried that his young 
disciple and mentee could get captured or killed during his reconnoitering of the enemy territory, like the Talmud suggests, that Moshe had an inkling something was going to go awry. That's possible. But his prescience about this disaster seems surprising. And in the context of the latter book, the latter half of the book, after the curse that they can no longer go into Eretz Israel, uh, the Israelites have been complaining again and again. And the scouting mission, therefore, is a forfeitstenden. It is a, a premonition of what's about to happen. Okay, let's talk about the problem of reintroducing Yoshua. Taken on its own, this description of Hoshea being renamed offers a very touching description of Moses' relationship with his students. Uh, he's a mentor and appears unproblematic. But for the reader of the Torah, as a final redaction and looking at the literary placing of chapters in the Torah, it's highly surprising. Firstly, the Torah writes as Hoshea bin Nun, the prince, the Nasi of the tribe of Ephraim. Then it says, Moshe renames him Yehoshua. This sounds as if a new character was being introduced and the reader is being given a new background. But guess what? Yehoshua has already appeared a number of times prior to the naming. Joshua is the general of the army in the battle against Amalek in Exodus 17.9. And he serves as Moses' attendant in a number of stories. Secondly, even more striking, since the renaming happens only at this point in the Torah, it stands to reason that in all previous stories, the character's name should have been Hoshea, not Yoshua. And it's not the case. Joshua is never once called Hoshea, before this story. So let's look at the traditionals. There are source critical solutions that I don't want to go into today that are very appealing, of course, to the naughty side of me, but we'll stick with the Mepharshim. They are well aware of these problems. The Riva, in his commentary on the verse, cites Reb Moshe of Kusi, and in my Daf Ditti two days ago, I go into the biography of Moshe of Kusi in France, 13th century, and I actually showed a picture of the cathedral in Kusi so that you know there were Jews there millennium. And Moshe of Kusi suggests that although Moshe called him Yoshua only now, the Torah written by Moshe at a later period in his life calls him Yoshua throughout. It's a very interesting way of the Torah as Moshe's diary and his love for Yeshua, which then becomes retroactive. I quote, even though we find many places above where he's called Joshua before his name was changed, nevertheless, when Moshe wrote the Torah in his name, his name had already been changed. Therefore, he used the name Yeshua everywhere, but in the list of scouts where he informs us that his name originally was Hoshea. Now, the Chizkuni has a different approach. And he says, it isn't that Moshe called him Joshua now, rather what it means is that Moshe called him Joshua already back when he became his attendant and found favor in his eyes. True to his style of reading, 
He believes that even though the renaming is mentioned in the scout story for the first time, in reality, Moshe had already been calling him that for a while. Now, both these traditional approaches attempt to make sense of the timeline where Joshua had already been introduced into the narrative under his familiar name before this unusual reintroduction of the scouts. Very nice. But let's now look at the Ramban. And I want to share with you a very interesting Ramban. And the Ramban says as follows. The Ramban, the great 13th century Spanish commentator, provides an unusual insight into his surname. For strictly speaking, we may have expected Yehoshua, son of Nun, to be Yehoshua ben Nun, N-U-N, whereas the ben means son or son of, instead of which the text invariably refers to him, Yehoshua bin Nun, the difference being the segol is ben, meaning the son of Nun. But what does bin with a chirik, what does that mean? Bin Nun with a chirik, a long E vowel. Now the Ramban suggests in his commentary to Shmos that the variation is grammatically sound. And we may add that it may even be preferred when the two equivalent consonants converge. Remember, the Torah doesn't have violations. So the, the violation, the Tiberian system, ninth century, that we have is being with a chirik. It should have been ben nun. I am the son of nun. But the Ramban says the words agu bin yakir, as you can see in Mishle, that also uses the word a chirik. Nevertheless, he adds an additional insight by suggesting the people would refer to him in this way out of respect, for he was the most illustrious of Moshe's disciple. And so they would call him Binun, Kihoyog Godol Betalmide Moshe Rabbeinu, Vayikrulo Binun, Kloima, oh, a pun. Binun means hanavon, ki ein navon v'chachom kamohu. Just like there is no wise as he. Binun means Joshua, the wise one. The Ramban dramatically and perceptively connects Binun to Binun, a Hebrew root that signifies comprehension, understanding, and wisdom. The way only a Talmud who suffered the master's life and life history would know. The people of Israel understood that and intentionally pronounced Yehoshua's surname in a way that could be construed as not only the son of Nun, but in, more importantly, the wise one. I love that Ramban. Now let's go back to that Yud I mentioned and share with you a very beautiful Midrash that will transition us into how do we make sense of this change of name uh, from an, a Hasidic perspective and also from um, a personal way of looking at this for our Avodas Hashem. So, Omar Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai. Now, this Metrish 
isn't brought now. It's brought by Sora when Sora's name was changed from Sarai Sin Reish Yud to Sarah Sin Reish Hey. And in Breshit Rabbah, we're told of this wonderful, wonderful midrash of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Omar Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, Yud Shenotel Hakadosh Baruch Hu Misorai, the Yud that was extracted from her name. And remember, the name isn't just the name. Omen est nomen. The name reveals the character. So if the name has changed, the character has changed. The Yud complained. Oh, your tosp. He started flying around and uh, hovering so the Yud is taken from Sorai and he's left an orphaned Yud. Now Yud is the smallest letter and now complains because I am just the smallest letter of the of the of the alphabets, remember that if you're a sofer writing a sefer Torah, it's just one drop of ink, and we know that from the medrash that Moshe Haya Onov Mikol Adam, the Onov should have had a yud in it, and it's it's not plene, it's it's not in the word, it's Onov I Nun Vav. What happened to the yud? And so the medrash says. Moshe refused to write, I am the humblest of all men. So he wrote the Anav defectively. So the Torah says, but there was just an exact amount of ink available. What did he do with that drop? It was only one drop for the iota, the Yud. He put it on his forehead. And from that ink on the forehead, lo yodaki koran or panav, there came a horn, a shining beam from that Yud, which was a double Anivas. It's the Anivas of saying that Moshe is on of Mikol Adam. I ain't going to write that about myself. <laughs> it's an absolutely stunning Medrash. And that same Yud, that little drop of ink now is flying in the air and is complaining to the Rabbeinu Shalom because I am the smallest of all the vowels. That's why you think you're bullying me because I'm the smallest. Therefore, you can just rip me out and take me out of sorrow. It's a stunning medrash. It's so beautiful. You know, in the Greek alphabet, we go from alpha to omega, and very time, many often the times the Gemara uses the word yud and says iota in the Gemara. Why? Because the yud, that little dot, is the midpoint in the Greek alphabet. It's the fulcrum upon which the entire structure of the alphabetic universe, the language, uh, hangs upon that tiny little dot. That Nukuda, that Yud in Kabbalah is the flashpoint of insight that you get from outside your head. You don't know where it comes from. It comes from Chochmah, that superb platonic sphere up above. She'anik tana That's why you think you can just rip me out from Sora <laughs> And God's response 
is even more enigmatic. Listen to what he says. In the past, before I ripped you out, look at the word, you were Sarai. You were the last letter of her name. Now I'm going to take you out of the last name and put you in the first name. Now you may be bothered by the fact that in the Bala Medrash says that I'm taking you out of a woman and I'm putting you in a man. I don't want to go down that rabbit hole because... Already a couple of hundred years later, the Zoya picks up on that and says, don't think that sorrow was any less. Sorrow was much greater than Avraham. So we don't have to worry about the feminist critique of this because it gets completely reversed uh, in the Zoya. And he says something even more beautiful that she was Sarai, she was a princess in her own aristocratic way, hidden. Now she became Sarah, which means a princess for the, for the whole world. Beautiful. Which now transitions us into some beautiful Torahs. And the first one I want to read to you is the Kedushas Levi. And the Kedushas Levi has the same problem as the Mephorashim. But now he's going to take us into a, a mystical journey, which is dazzling. He says, But also, Sharak Sherim Hayu. Now, Kedushas Levi doesn't see criticism in anyone in Am Yisrael. He cannot take criticism for Kal Yisrael. So he's always Malamed Zhus. He's always looking for good things to say. And he says, But also, Sharak Sherim Hayu. Forget about Moses' premonitions. They were all kosher. They went into Eretz Yisrael as spies with a good heart. So then why did he just focus in on Joshua? Why didn't he bless them all? That's his question. Why didn't he bless them all? Look at that word, v'yaturu. We call them the meraglim. A spy is a meragel. But he says, I'm sending you to Eretz Yisrael, the Yatur Esaaretz. And in Mishnah Torah, in Devarim, when he looks back at what happened, what did he describe them doing? Now, there's a difference between the Yaturu and the Yachburu. And he says this amazing thing, which reminds me of Simon Shama's book, Landscape and Memory, in which he goes through four different countries, the Black Forests of Germany, the Sequoia Forests of uh, California, the Moors of Southern England. And in each, he shows how the landscape lends itself to the poetry of those who are describing it. An absolutely stunning book. And that's what reminds me of what he's about to say. 
And just like there are 248 limbs and 365 sinews in the human body, Eretz Yisrael is a living, organic ecosystem that can also mirror the human anatomy, landscape and memory. He's quoting from, from Tanakh. The eye of the land, the belly button of the land, the genitals of the land, the heart of the land. And then he says, quoting from the Shla and from uh, from the Zoya, that the 365 sinews and 248 limbs represent the positive and negative commandments. And that every particular sinew and limb is incarnated with the spirituality that requires that mitzvah to liberate it. That's appropriate for it. That's specific. So we are organ specific in the human anatomy and physiology, and we are organ specific in mitzvahs. Kamo Kane Gamba Oretz. Dazzling. So too in the landscape of Eretz Yisrael. They also have organs and sinews and landscape and trees and gardens and rivers and sea. Typical from the Ramban. And when Am Yisrael performs the mitzvahs in the land, and for the Ramban, there are no mitzvahs outside Eretz Yisrael that mean anything. We're just performance for when we come back to Eretz Yisrael in the, in the Geula. So by doing our mitzvahs in our performance on our bodies in the land, the land becomes nourished too. Alkain, Shalach Moshe. So Moses sends the 12 tribes, the 12 men, but Sivalahem, the Yaturu et Haaretz, meaning the Yaturu, jumble the words, Torah, Yatur as in Torah, Sheyilmudu Sham Torah, the Yehoretz Noach Lekovsha. I need you to go to Eretz Israel to prime it. It needs priming so that when Am Yisrael comes, it's primed and ready for them so that when they keep Torah mitzvahs there, it becomes infected by it. The Yisrael must be embarrassed so that when it's primed, Am Yisrael will have a hashpa'ah. That's what the Yachburu Haaretz, Lashon Chofra HaChama. And this was the Cheshko. So for the for the Kedusha slavey who couldn't say anything negative about even the spies, the function of Yaturu at Eretz would be for the purpose of priming the land so that it can receive the hashpah from us performing mitzvahs in the land. Now I want to go even more deeper personally and suggest that the Zoya says Moshe was the son and 
Yoshua was the moon. Yoshua had none light of its own, only what he received from Moshe. Yoshua had no divine contact with God until Joshua, till the book of Joshua. And so everything, although some say he finished the last eight verses of Deuteronomy and Moses died and they cried for him. One uh, Gomorrah says that he actually wrote that with divine inspiration. But really, it was Moshe who was the sun and giving light, and Yoshua was the moon. What does that mean? Comes along the Toldus Yaakov Yosef and says an amazing vort that applies to me and all other judgmental individuals. And I want you to think about this as we look at Moses' premonition, uh, the darkness of this whole episode, uh, and what we can learn from it. And he says this in Pasha's Pekude, not here. Now we know, as we're learning in the Gemara and Dafyomi, that the function of the Kior, the bowl, in the base Amikdosh, in the temple, was to the Kohen Godel to wash his hands. The kasher. Now, that's difficult. You might say, my hands are clean. I don't need to wash the hamotzi. I don't need to wash. My hands are clean. If it was there, it meant that the hands were probably filled, dirty with blood. But what happens if there wasn't any? So you might think that that kior is only for those whose hands are dirty, spiritually, morally. They need to wash their hands. I'm, I'm cool. I'm cool. I'm cool. I, I, my hands are clean. Look. And he says that it's dazzling. That's why the kior was made with the marot, the copper mirrors. Remember back in Egypt and the women had mirrors and the men came home from work and they were tired. And it was the women who said, we're not gonna have a Klal Yisrael if we don't procreate. So they would take them into the fields and they would lie down with a picnic and she would take out this mirror and she would say, look at me, look how pretty. And he would say, no, look at me, look at me, look at my muscles. And they would look at each other and that would arouse lovemaking. It's a, it's a Beferisher Medrash in Mechilta. And that, when Moses was given the Maras Sovas by the women, he got angry and said, how dare you bring something that was used for naughtiness? Don't bring that to the temple. And God said, no, absolutely, dafka those. And that's the cure that the Soita puts her hands in to wash and they drink, make her drink from the Mayim of that Kior with the Maros Sovaos, those copper mirrors. So comes along the Toldos, the best Talmud of the Baal Shem, and says, That's why we have to have a mirrored Kior. It's not just when you dip your hands in and wash your hands, but when you say, my hands are clean, I don't, I don't know. You don't have to criticize me. I got nothing wrong. My soul is clean. The reason that the kior is mirrored, so that 
he will look at the next guy because it's an angled mirror. He's going to see the next guy washing his hands. He's going to see here. Yeah, I can see why he needs it. I know him. Yeah, I know exactly what he needs. Oz Yargish Shechisoran Zulato Yeshbo Ba'atzmo Gamkein. Wow. When he sees the fellow's character defects mirrored in the Marasovos of the Kio as he's washing his hands, he then Yargish, he feels empathy. He says, Oh my God. I can't criticize him. I have the same character defects. Just a dazzling psychological insight into the washing of the hands. And then he realizes, I better wash too. He says, meditate on this. Every time you look at the next guy and see, criticize him and just make sure there's a mirror there because he is a mirror of you, right? And I then realized later on that I found this, that my Rebbe, the Baal Shem Tov, had said the exact thing. Omnom, but this is for Gehoiben Yidon. It says in Perike Avos, chapter four. Only a wise man will look in that mirror, see what his character defects are, and say, let me apply that to me, because he's learning from him. Only a chacham, a pikeach, has that insight or humility to be able to look at himself, say, yeah, it's me too. Yodea chesron al yodei shiro chesron zuloso, who knows that by looking at the chisorn of the next one, it's not to criticizing, but to internalize what I need to do because I see it in him. But if you're not a chochem and you're just going through life and just criticizing him, criticizing him to make yourself feel good, so then you're not going to learn from this. So, Moshe Kibel Torah Misinai Umosher a dazzling interpretation. The very first part of Pirkei of Avos, Maseches Avos, is the transmission of Torah from the divine to the human. And who is the connector? Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Kibel Torah Misinai, Moshe Le Yehoshua. Moshe receives the Torah and hands it over to Yehoshua. Now, if Moshe is the Pnei Chama and Yoshua is the Pnei Levona, Moshe is the sun. He receives the light of the divine. He hands it to Yoshua, who is the moon, who has no light of his own. Every light he has, he receives from the sun. And what's the difference? Comes the told us and says, Ki Moshe Yada Chesrono. Moshe looked in that mirror. And all he could see was his chisaron. And the definition of a tzaddik, we talked about it last week, the broken tzaddik, is that the tzaddik knows his chisaron. It's constantly before him all the time. Lekach kibel hatoro meatzmo. Therefore, 
he was able to receive, like the sun that self-generates the light, he could he received the Torah from himself. Does he mean within himself, from himself? Clearly a very radical notion. Because he was the sun, he emanated the light, he emanated the Torah. Masha'en ke'en Yoshua, shelo yadach esrono. He did not know his chisaron. He was the moon. He had no light of his own. He needed to receive that from Moshe. So I would like to suggest that the moment he changed into some light of his own, when Moshe gave him the name, he gave him the Yud, the Yud that flew before God and said, I am the smallest, my chisaron, I am the smallest of the letters. Don't worry. Sarah's going to become a big shot. She's going to become the princess to all the nations. I'm going to give you to Yeshua because he needs to carry on the torch. He needs to become the Chochem. He needs to be able to get to that light of the sun, the light of Moshe. And how can he do it? Only through the addition of the Yud, the addition of the smallest letter, the Yud of Anava that Moshe had put on his forehead because he refused to write and Moshe was the most humble of all. It is that Yud that we must take away with ourselves, the Yud of Yoshua, to realize our own character defects, looking into the mirror of other people's faults that were so easy to criticize and to take it upon ourselves, and that we should all learn from this wonderful transition of what? Not power, not leadership, but humility. Have a wonderful, wonderful week.